On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, filling in for Bill, who is still on a well-earned vacation. We're going to be chatting about cannabis and driving. It's been nine months roughly now since we allowed cannabis to be legalized in this country. You would think that would have led to a raft of impaired driving by cannabis charges. Have there been? Now you might be surprised. We'll be chatting about drugs in amateur sports. There was a story at the World Swimming Championships last week that brought this back to the fore. And with the Tokyo Olympics almost exactly opening a year, almost exactly from now, are we any further ahead in stopping dopers in sports? And also, we'll be chatting about near meat, fake meat, meat light, whatever you want to call that beyond beef stuff. It tastes good, but is it really meat? Is it healthy? Is it better for you? Does it save the planet? Why are we eating it? And who is pushing back against it? Because suddenly there is big blowback against this idea. All that coming up. Enjoy. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are now nine months roughly into cannabis being legal in this country. And at the time that cannabis was given the green light, among other things, we heard that police departments were being trained to recognize impairment by cannabis. And we were told police departments would have the tools and the equipment to be able to test for cannabis impairment by drivers. And yet there are numbers out this week that say, and you ready for this one? There are almost no charges laid in this country for impairment by cannabis. Something like a hundred in total. Maybe a little more than that. But very few, relatively speaking, charges for driving while intoxicated or impaired by cannabis across this country. Police in Alberta have laid eight charges. The entire province of Alberta, eight charges total. In BC, and boy, if there is one province where I think we would expect that there may be a little cannabis being smoked, it would be BC. Zero charges, not a single charge for driving while impaired on cannabis in British Columbia. Here in Ontario... Sorry, my numbers earlier were wrong. Uh, Here in Ontario, there have been 100 charges. But most of those have been in northern Ontario, in small towns. There have been very, very few charges laid in cities. Oddly, Hamilton is leading the way that way. Hamilton has laid 15 of these. We are by far the highest when it comes to a big city police department for doing that. Let me bring in Ari Goldkind. He is a Toronto defense lawyer about this. Ari, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Your BC listeners aren't going to like that little jibe. Oh, you don't think that they believe me? <laughs> they do, and they're proud of it. Uh-huh. Ross Rebliati. Remember the Olympic, uh, the snowboarder? I think he may have something to say about that. Well, I think he's probably sound asleep right now. <laughs> uh, just for a little background here, police every Christmas or around major holidays put out more ride programs because they know through experience that there are going to be more people stupidly, but drinking and driving around those times, correct? That's exactly right. And as I've said many times before, including on this very channel, there should be far more ride programs, not less, at all sorts of different times of the year and in places where it makes sense to have them. Agreed. Agreed. But if we, so if we follow the logic, if we say, okay, you know what, when there is an opportunity or when there's a reason for people to drink, we know that there are going to be people who are getting behind the wheel of a car. We don't like it. We don't understand it, but we know they will. Statistics Canada says that since cannabis became legal nine months ago, uh, use is up sharply in this country. So does it make any sense whatsoever that more people would not be getting behind the wheel of a car after smoking a joint? 
Well, believe it or not, Scott, it actually, in a perverse way, it does. There was never a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that this was an area akin to the far more serious area, which is impaired by alcohol and drinking. There were very, very few studies that suggested, if at all, that those who imbibe and smoke a joint are more likely to get behind the wheel now uh, or at any point after doing that than they were before legislation. Obviously, this is new, but there is a very weak correlation between the use of cannabis and cannabis-impaired driving. That is not the case for alcohol, but there's two ways to look at this, Scott, just to break down the article that we're speaking about here. It's either that the police have taken a vacation, for lack of a better term, from enforcing or finding or charging people who are driving while high, that's one version of it, or that it is just something that is not on the radar because it is not something that is prevalent on our roadways, depending, of course, whether you're in a rural or urban area. I suppose that a third one could be thrown in, and we'll talk about this one in a minute, and that is that the, the process to have someone charged, to find them, and then to go through the process to get a charge laid is onerous at this point still to the point where it does it's very difficult for police to do that well that's right that's what i was referring to by number one in other words police taking a vacation during their duties but let's explain in 30 seconds what that means in real life which is different than alcohol testing now which is if you're pulled over for a legitimate highway traffic act reason your bumper's off your rear license sticker is outdated you blew through a stop sign and they want you to blow you're blowing end of story but for marijuana they have to take a blood test and picture this through whether you're in hamilton whether you're in toronto or whether you're in rural saskatchewan because rural saskatchewan will be different which is they've got a first show through trained people i won't bore you with the details that you're impaired and that they have grounds to take a blood sample now remember a blood sample is not an easy thing to get, very different than blowing into a breathalyzer machine. So the idea that police are going to take time to march you into an emergency room in Toronto or Hamilton where there's trauma patients, shooting patients, people with all sorts of emergency acute trauma, the idea that cops want to spend three, four hours sitting in a Hamilton hospital, do you? No, and neither do they. And so when you find somebody, uh, and even if you wanted to, and, and this has been brought forward, even if you wanted to, and let's say you're in downtown Toronto or somewhere in Toronto, by the time you stop the car, and I believe, t- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that by law right now you have two hours to do this. So from the time you stop the car, you have to assess that they are intoxicated, make the arrest, get them into the car, drive them to the hospital, and get the test. And a lot of cops are saying, apparently, we're hearing the chances of me being able to get blood in that time is almost nil. If I don't get it in that time, the charge is not going to stick. It's not going to go to court, so why bother? Not exactly. That is something that's being reported. It's not exactly accurate. Within two hours gets you through a bunch of more easy-to-prove legal doors. Okay. But, but if it was after two, three, four hours, there's ways to sort of get it read back. That's a legal term for saying you can still do something in court, but where you're going to see the police care a little bit more about whether somebody is high let's use the word high i'm not talking about drunk is for example if they get into a car accident and if they're taken to the hospital then you can get a warrant for their blood then it's worth the wait but for somebody else scott who they they think may have smoked the joint 
you just have to think through police resources. And people can ask themselves, it's a very legitimate question, do you want a cop taking off three, four, five hours of his or her night right now to go pursue this, to go to the hospital, or would you rather them focus on the kinds of crimes that many would argue are more serious? But it's also, the last part of that answer is, Canada should be, and I think is developing, there, there's technology in the States now, Scott, where it becomes easier to take the blood test rather than going through the Toronto Western, Toronto General, Hamilton General, where you're sitting and literally in a lineup behind people that are in far worse shape than your guy that may have just smoked up. So, again, as we said off the top, when this law came into place, one of the things that the government said was going to follow as well, it was going to come hand in hand, was the police would have tools to be able to do their job when it comes to impaired driving. And again, I'm talking impaired by cannabis. Do the police then not have those tools? Well, I think they do. So to get into the weeds, it's called the Drager Tester. Uh, A lot of people were complaining and moaning. Defense lawyers have made very good living the last little bit by saying, oh, it doesn't work in the cold, this, that, and the other. Where the police have the will, there is certainly the way. And remember, there is a big difference between the amount in your blood of the active ingredient in cannabis. It could actually lead to a jail sentence if you've got over a certain amount in your blood on even a first offense. The real area here is how, if at all, are the police going to detect it? Does the machine work? There are challenges coming up in court. There's arguments on both sides of that, but I think by and large the machine can can provide a basis within which your blood can be ordered to be taken. But going back to resources and the reality of this, Scott, because realities do matter in policing, right? Like, let's just remember that police make choices. This is a resource issue. This is a cumbersome issue. But in two or three years, Scott, I think this issue will be more ironed out. Anybody who thinks this should be perfection in year one without some kinks to be ironed out just doesn't understand the way the intersection of politics and the law works. The the, uh, the device, again, that you're talking about, the roadside, I've forgotten the name. You, you Drager. The Drager. Has it been tested in court? And I don't mean like scientifically tested, but ha- have there been cases that lawyers have or that the Crown has won that establishes that this is a reliable test illegally? It is not clear that it's gone up to higher courts yet, where a higher court will rule on the constitutionality of it, the efficacy of it. Efficacy is a fancy word I use in court. The, it's a great word. Whether it, yeah, whether it works or not. So there's a whole bunch of cases pending right now where sort of across Canada you're looking for that one decision out of a court of appeal of a province, for example, not just the lower court trial division, but so far the machine is in use, but a lot of police departments, this is really an important part of your question. A lot of police departments across Canada haven't ordered it or don't have a lot of them or are somewhat skeptical of ordering them. They're not cheap until there is guidance from higher courts. But again, Scott, a lot of people want perfect to be the enemy of the good here. And in my view, this will take a little bit of time. It'll work its way through its court, through the courts, but impaired by alcohol, by alcohol, continues to be the scourge that most people who drive to work, drive their kids to childcare, drive their kids anywhere, should really be more concerned about. I think that most of us 
would be able, most of us, the average Joe would be able to recognize if we were standing beside a police officer at a ride check, helping them, shadowing them, I think most average people, if a person who was drunk on alcohol pulled up, we would be able to recognize that either by the glassy eyes or the smell or the slurring of the words or something else. Is it as easy for police, do you think, to identify that quickly in, in something like that, a guy, someone, a guy, a woman who is intoxicated with cannabis? Well, two parts to your question or the answer, Tim, uh, Scott, sorry, is very important to remember. A lot of people can get through ride checks without those indicia of impairment, without the glossy eyes, without the odor of alcohol. That's proven. That's one of the reasons the government changed the laws here. So it's very important to remember that, yes, somebody who's three times over the legal limit, four times, two and a half times, they might smell as if they're drunk as a skunk. But there are other people just closer to the legal limit that get by very easily. When it comes to impaired, to the part of your question, I think it would be much harder for somebody who is minimally impaired, emphasize minimally impaired by THC, by cannabis. That is something that may escape uh, detection a little bit more, particularly for somebody who is a seasoned user of marijuana. We all picture Snoop Dogg. And that big cloud of smoke emanating from his royal snoopiness, that is not necessarily the case for somebody who uses marijuana recreationally or for pain or for some other reason. So I just didn't want people to be under the assumption that when you drive through ride or if you're pulled over, the cop is going to see you in a haze of some smoke almost like you're filming a video. Not, not every van is like Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont That's, High. I, I, I just Because I'm 45, I'm very reticent to go back to these older movies that millennials <laughs> would go, what the heck are you talking about? If, you, if you're a millennial and you haven't seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, as a complete aside, go watch it. Um, now, okay, so do we have, with, with alcohol intoxication at this point, it's pretty simple because we have a, a, a standard blood alcohol level that makes it illegal for you to be above that. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a line. And if you surpass that, presumably you're guilty is, does such a thing exist with cannabis? Yes. So as I was saying a few minutes ago, there are different levels. I mean, I I mean, obviously most people listening to us watch TV, so they'll watch us TV and they know the term difference between misdemeanor and felony. So in Canada, there are, there are different ranges that if you're impaired or have a certain amount of THC and the active ingredients in your blood, you're going to be in a lot less legal danger than if you're over another certain amount. So there is that scale increasing versus you're absolutely right. It's 0.08 for alcohol. So when people say drinking and driving is illegal in Canada, that's actually not true, Scott. It is legal up to a point for people with certain licenses, obviously younger people with different licenses has zero tolerance, but as long as you're not over that threshold, that's the threshold for criminal conduct. For cannabis, as I said, there's different stages, which is why the blood test of this is both cumbersome and important. So there are different legal punishments depending on how much you have in your system. Because back when this was legalized, uh, then-Justice Minister Jody Raybould was asked about who would be charged or what would be the level. And her answer, and this is a quote, and I, I, I'm assuming this got refined since then. Uh, her quote was, it depends on a case-by-case basis. And I was thinking, that's, a, that's an odd position for the legal system to be in, that we're just going to figure it out as we go. Well, that's actually true. It, it is case-by-case, but it is level. But look, 
There's a decision last week that is, has completely escaped, completely escaped mainstream media, where a judge in Oshawa, Ontario, essentially threw out drunk driving rules by saying they don't apply to Aboriginal right. people. Right, yes. So I, I think that should be literally at the top of any parliament, uh, political discussion this week. It has come and gone. It is as bad and as serious of uh, a legal issue that now even impaired driving, so long as you check a certain demographic box, Scott, is now forgivable and minimum punishments don't apply. I'm amazed that for people who are focused on certain issues, that's one that people have been tight-lipped about, especially, Scott, if you're a person that thinks drinking and driving is as serious of a societal problem as I do, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm viewed as a traitor for even saying that out loud. I don't care. Truth is truth. Uh, last thing before we let you go. With that, uh, I mean, if this is a national law, if this is a national... There is a sense that if it's a national law that there should be some continuity across the country. So how how do we have a situation now where Hamilton, as I say, is the leading police force. They've laid 15 charges, 100 in Ontario, none in B.C. It, it, it doesn't seem like the law is being applied equally across the country with this well, cannabis. That's right. And lawyers have commented and said, well, it's not being applied uniformly. Well, let's break that down because I, I, I don't drink that Kool-Aid of that answer, okay? So in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Montreal, there are going to be more shootings. Inevitably, there are just more shootings, demographics, uh, cultural changes, crime changes, uh, population numbers. The whole enchilada goes into the mix of what are different crimes in urban centers versus rural. The idea that the Toronto Police Service, the Hamilton Police Service, especially, Scott, when we're dealing with issues of opioids and fentanyl overdoses and heroin issues and crimes of violence against women, the idea that an urban police service is, is or should be out looking or sitting in hospital waiting rooms for five hours on somebody who smoked a joint that's a different fish in a rural small town in Quebec where everybody knows everybody. You could probably walk into a hospital waiting room in rural Quebec. You'll know the doctor. You'll say, I got to get this guy a blood test. There probably isn't a seven hour hallway medicine wait. So the idea that, you know, we should have the same per capita stats in Hamilton as we do in Timbuktu, I really resist that kind of thinking. I don't think it's intellectual. I don't think it's honest. And I don't think it reflects two things, the realities of living in an urban area and the policing demands that we put on police in urban areas who, quite frankly, I want them dealing with serious criminals and gangbangers, not getting cats out of trees. Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week marked the one-year time until the Tokyo Olympics open. Olympics are coming up, coming up fast. There'll be some locals that'll be going to the Olympics. We'll be keeping up on that stuff. Uh, last week was also the World Swimming Championships. That's when they were being held. Now, these two stories intersect in an important way because at the World Swimming Championships, a Chinese athlete named Sun Yang was cleaning up. He was the big winner at these championships, won a bunch of gold medals. And that would be great. That would be fine. We love a good story of an athlete that comes and does really well, Michael Phelps or whoever else. That would be a great story, except for the fact that he has a track record of doping. 
he has had a suspension in the past for doping. And much more recently, when drug testers came to him to get a sample of his blood to run through the typical protocols that all athletes now have to go through, one of his handlers took a hammer and smashed the vial. This is not a metaphor. This is not some sort of overstatement or hyperbole. He literally, a handler took a hammer and smashed the vial of his blood test, which prevented them from being able to do the test. Now that would be troubling, you would think. However, this is where the story goes off the rails because despite this rather egregious fact, FINA, that is the world's governing body of swimming said, ah, you smashed your vial of drug test. We couldn't test you, but you, you go ahead, swim anyway. We don't mind. So, Here's the backdrop. Now, you've got two swimmers, two other swimmers, at least two, two that I heard of, who won medals at this event. They took a stand. They said, you know what? We're not accepting this. We're swimming against someone who we don't even know what he's taking now. They refused to stand on the podium with him. They refused to accept their medals on the podium. They stood off to the side and got their bronze or silver medals. They also received condemnation from FINA. In other words, the protesters got penalized. The guy who there's suspicions about with the dubious story gets nothing. Which brings us back to the Tokyo Olympics. It's a year till the Tokyo Olympics. What does this story suggests to us about the state of doping in sports and how far ahead or not ahead we are in trying to stop this stuff. Jesse Lumsden is, uh, you know him, he played for the McMaster Marauders as a football player, played in the CFL, went to three Olympics as a bobsledder, and he has been an outspoken athlete uh, against doping in sports. He joins us now. Jesse, how are you today? Morning, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. You, You heard this story about the swimmers, right? I heard the protest. I just caught the tail end of, of your... I knew he had um, I knew the swimmer had a doping infraction. I didn't know about the, the test, so, the smashing of the vials. So are you, put yourself in the, in the position of the other athletes then. Can you sympathize with the other swimmers who say, no, 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 we're not going to acknowledge his winning by getting up on the podium? Can you see where they're coming from? Well, I would have done it. If, I, if, if there's conclusive evidence that he has had a positive test, and then, and then uh, you know, I'd like to hear more color on the around the uh, sort of the interference with the doping protocol. Um, if that is true, I would I would 100. I would be protesting his victories. I'd be protesting FINA. It's I mean, with everything that's happened in Russia in, in, in 2014, and we know that certain governing bodies. Um, are are light on these sorts of infractions, uh, and it comes from the top down. And if the IOC is going to be um, very loose with how they handle these situations, more and more countries and more and more athletes are going to go to further and further lengths uh, to ensure that they they don't test positive. But that's you know that's this is the state that we're that we're dealing with right now. You, you know, it's funny because you, not funny, you all, whenever we talk about this, you always sound irritated when it comes to doping. And, and, and I think that's probably a legitimate emotion that you have based on your experience. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it's, it's clear that it's, a, it's an issue. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in certain other, in other athletic leagues, they take a much firmer stance on, on um, how they handle these situations with, with, uh, solid penalties of fines and missed games and missed seasons and uh, programs to, to, to support those athletes. And, you know, you don't really hear of that in, in amateur sport where it seems to be most prevalent. And 
you know, a guy like Justin Gatlin who's been tested or tested positive two or three times, and the fact that he's still running and winning races and then can wave to the crowd, it's a joke. A lot of these drugs that athletes uh, that athletes have available now are uh, have lifelong benefits. I mean, numbers of studies have done that done that are out there with certain types of uh, whether it's anabolic agents or peptides or growth factors. Um, you know, once you've injected them or put them into your body and 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 trained hard, and I mean, don't get me wrong, just because you know those people that are using these drugs still train and train extremely hard. But even after they're off them and they go back to the training, they're able to maintain a certain level of, uh, of that um, growth benefit that the drugs were in there for, for a lifelong. So it's, they will, you know, certain athletes will take a two-year doping ban and they'll come back and they will get back to, say, 95% of where they were. They're still above the natural threshold to where they should be. And they're still able to compete. And WADA will never be able to catch up. Um, and that's just the, the, the way that sport is right now. WADA, for those who don't know, I assume most, the World Anti-Doping Agency that is the policeman for, for this that's trying to catch people. Uh, do you believe that in your career in bobsleigh, do you believe that you ever lost to somebody who was doping? Uh, I don't. Well, I, I lost to the Russians, and we know that they're doping. Um. We know they were doping in 2014, so yes. I don't know if I've ever been bumped off the podium, like by in a fourth or a fifth place situation with a, with with a team that was. Like, I don't want to. I'm not going to make assumptions. Um, but when it comes out that it's conclusive evidence, and you know, in 2014, and 13, and probably prior to that, the Russians were, you know, in that statewide doping program. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I've, I've definitely been there. Um, I'm thankful I haven't had to experience, you know, being kicked off an Olympic podium because of a uh, doping athlete. It's, mm. That would be, that'd be very, very tough pill to swallow. And, and there are those who have, I mean, you, you probably know Joanne Millar, uh, Hamilton swimmer. And there, there is long, the, the, there was a woman who beat her in the Olympics and she finished fourth and it was an Irish yeah. swimmer. And years later she was caught doping and you wonder, and I, th- I know Joanne has wondered whether she lost a gold, uh, uh, an Olympic medal because of someone. We don't know for sure, but there's suspicion. Yeah. Um, for sure. And yet every Olympics, Jesse, and leading up to every Olympics, there's always all kinds of talk, especially like after Sochi, there was all kinds of talk. This will never happen again. We're, we're going to crack down on this. We've got this covered. This is going to be fixed. And then it seems like inevitably there's another scandal that comes along later. It, it, it does make me think that we never will get rid of this. Well, why, why, like, why would they think it's not going to happen again after an entire nation gets caught in a statewide program, conclusive evidence, third party evaluated by uh, professionals that, that handle these sorts of situations that absolutely have proven that the entire state of Russia was doping the majority of their athletes and they maybe missed a year and a half. And athletes that prove that they are training outside of could compete under a neutral flag. And that was the same in Pyeongchang. Uh, and then they're back. Yeah. And why? Well, What's yeah. The, what do we, what do, why do you think anything's going to change? You, they, they, you get a slap on the wrist and, and, and then you realize the benefits of a, you know, of a program that lasted four years for athletes that are going to last two or four quadru- uh, one or two more quadrennials. It's, it, you know, it, 
is until WADA realizes that they are never going to be able to catch up to the way that science is developing these drugs unless they bring people in who develop those drugs, and when that was talked about in the Icarus case, um, they'll never catch up. They'll never be ahead of the game. It's, it, that's a really interesting point, because every time there is a computer system that is hacked, it seems like the companies, the security companies, always hire the hackers to come and work for them because they know how to break through the, the, the guidelines or the walls. And so let's bring in the people who figured it out so that they can create the defenses. I don't hear, maybe it does happen, but I don't hear that with WADA or with the anti-doping things to say, look, let's hire all these doctors at these countries that have figured out how to beat the system. Let's bring them in so we can stop it. Well, there's, yeah, there's two situations that come to mind for me, and it's, it's that, and I've heard podcasts throughout, uh, you know, the last few years of, um, you know, there's this one guy, I can't remember his name, this one guy on Tim, Tim Ferriss's podcast who developed these drugs as part of his career. And, um, you know, when he got popped in, in the U.S., he offered his services to help WADA. Uh, and they said no. And then you look at the 2008 financial crisis, the guys who really unearthed the whole uh, fraudulent activity that was going on in the, in, the, in the mortgage and the default swaps, offered his services to say how he found that out, and then government declined them. I don't know. There's certain situations where you hear these things, and it just makes sense. Like you say, the FBI is going to bring these people on to help them stop whatever is going to happen next because they know more than they do. Maybe the government or these agencies feel like they have it under control. That's a philosophical debate that you and I do not know enough about to really dive into, but um, it's uh, it's definitely interesting in, in that it is 100% the case for uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency. You said off the top that you'd like to know a little more, uh, and, it, and I think a lot of people would, about this particular Chinese swimmer and what happened with this vial and smashing it with a hammer. Well, the story is that his people, his handlers and him were concerned because some of the people who came to collect it didn't look like they were the proper people, they weren't properly authorized or something, and so they were, they say, they were concerned, didn't want their sample to land in the wrong hands, who knows what could happen, therefore they smashed it. My question that follows automatically is assuming then that these were legitimate doping people who maybe didn't have the right credentials with them or something else. Why would you not then turn around and send back people with the proper credentials like 10 minutes later to make sure? Why would you just say, oh, well, sorry, can't do it anymore. That it just, it reeks of no urgency whatsoever to do this right. Oh, well, there's a couple holes in the story. And, it, and it, I mean, if they, if it, if a, a doping agent uh, an anti-doping agent shows up to test you, um, whether it's blood or urine, they usually have a really big case with them, and they'll have multiple vials, multiple uh, um, containers for, for urine. So if, you know, the, what I'm picturing in the head, if, he, if they drew his blood and then smashed it, or did they even get to that point, they would have had to smash a lot of vials and a lot of stuff. And, and so that's one hole. The other hole is, yeah, if the, the anti-doping agent experience something like that that's avoidance of a test and that's an automatic um uh, penalty that's there's there's you know if you if you in in this canadian center of ethics in sport you have to put aware you fill out a whereabouts form and it's an online form and it essentially uh, provides you provides the cces with your entire schedule so i've done this i did this for the past eight years you have to put 
at least a location where you're guaranteed you'll be for one hour every single day between the times of 6 and 10 p.m. So the easiest way to do it is, you know, you put your 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 residence at a time that you know you're going to be there at either 6 or, you know, most likely 10 p.m. when you're just waking up or you're getting ready to go to sleep. Um, so they know exactly where you are. They know exactly where you're going to be at all times. This is part of the you know, the, the, the burden of, of going through this testing protocol, but it's what you sign up for as an amateur athlete. Uh, if you don't, if you, if you miss, uh, if you put in incorrect information and you're not there during that one hour, you get a strike. If you miss three tests unintentionally, you're sleeping at your girlfriend's house, you forget to change your whereabouts. You go on a camping trip, you forget to change your whereabouts. Three strikes, you can actually be put into a, a scenario where you are, go through arbitration where they can potentially ban you for two years as a, as a doping violation. So the, the rules are pretty strict and they're, and they're, and they're pretty, they're pretty tight on, on a lot of this stuff and they, and they don't play around at least in Canada, they don't play around. So for him to be able to smash files or his handlers to smash files, uh, it, it would have been, or avoidance in any way is can, should be considered a doping infraction. and He should have been penalized for that. And then FINA, you know, penalizing the guys who are not standing on the podium. Well, that's just them puffing their chest, and, and it's, a, it's just a joke. Is the athlete should have the right to be able to protest uh, a situation like that. Jesse, we only have 30 seconds or so, and this is a question that is going to take more than that, I understand, so forgive me, but is it time to consider lifetime bans on first offense for doping infractions in amateur sports? I truly believe that there has been incidental incidences where people have taken supplements. Now, that being said, we are all told very early on that it is on you what you put into your body. It is up to you. and, and it's, So you have to do your due diligence on supplements. I think there should be a more strict first-time ban. I think that if there's a second-time offense, it should be a lifetime ban. It's... Um... It's an interesting one. The guy's name, again, you can look it up, Sun Yang, for people who are listening. You can read this story. You can go look it up. And uh, when Tokyo rolls around, you can make your decisions about whether you think that uh, the associations and the affiliations and organizations are all taking this seriously. Jesse Lumsden, always appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Near meat, almost meat, close to meat, veggie meat. All those kind of things are what people are describing them as or what they're being called these days. Uh, you've, you've seen the marketing for this, right? You've seen the ad campaigns. You've seen the, the push for this. There are ads everywhere for this now because this is the new thing. We are in a allegedly health-conscious new world where we want to eat better, where we want to avoid bad foods that may harm us. And, you know, red meat, we're told beef, mm, not really sure if that's supposed to be too good for us anymore. We're not really sure anymore. And, oh, and, and, and if you listen to some people, they will tell you that beef is, beef is very bad because, you know, cow farts are a big driver of climate change. I've always thought that was an odd thing to point to as the, the cause of climate change, cow farts. But anyway, so be it. Anyway, there's been so much hype in talk in recent months about imitation meat. Uh, it started with A&W around here. They had their Beyond Beef burgers. Now Tim Hortons is heavy into it. The idea, as I say, is that plants must be, we think that plants must be healthier than meat. Problem is some critics are coming forward and saying not so fast. According, um, there was a guy, a, a 
University of California Davis professor who works in agriculture who was talking uh, to like a TED talk on agriculture stuff the other day. Uh, he said, he told the rather stunned host, he says, when you look at Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat or anything, you'll find that they have 21 or 22 highly processed ingredients. In fact, so processed, you are hard pressed in identifying the difference between those items and let's say pet food. Ugh. That doesn't sound too appetizing. Anyway. Makes you wonder, is this the future or is this just a fad? And are the critics right or are they merely fighting for a beef industry that's now facing pressure from this new food? Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University. He is the food professor. We love having him on here. Sylvain, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Uh, I've tried the A&W Beyond Beef Burger. I've tried the Tim Hortons sausage fake beef thing. I don't know if you have. They, they taste like meat, don't they? Uh, I actually tried the Beyond Burger, but not the Tim Hortons one. How was it? Well, it was it. It tasted like a sausage. I thought both of these things. They, they. If you had put a blindfold and not told me what kind of food I was eating, I would have just assumed I was eating meat. They were that. They were close enough that way, and I think that's the attraction, isn't it? That you can yeah, feel well, better about yourself, maybe, and yet it tastes the same. Exactly. So they're they're trying to replicate what you know. Or what your mouth knows, uh, uh, without the guilt, basically. Uh, whether it's you care about the environment, your health, animal welfare, doesn't matter. That's really the game. And so, over the last uh, little while, companies like Beyond Meat and uh, and Maple Leaf have tried to uh, replicate uh, exactly what we know as omnivores, uh, because the targeted market. Uh, are flexitarians uh, vegans and vegetarians is, they've they've moved on uh, a long time ago they don't even come close to the to the meat counter but flexitarians do and, and and that's why you're seeing a lot of people buying both at the same time making that link between uh the the natural traditional uh sources of of proteins so animal proteins chicken pork and beef and uh, this new phenomena, plant-based uh, products, uh, like the one you tasted at Tim Hortons or the one at the A&W. You, sorry, was the word flexitarian? Yeah, flexitarian. That's a, yeah. That's a great word. I, I hadn't heard that word before. So that's basically people who are, what does that mean? What would be the definition of that? So flexitarians are people who are part-time vegetarians, basically. So the, let's say that you would uh, go for like a meatless Monday or a meatless Friday but on the weekends, you'll run back to the barbecue as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, so people remain attached to meat, but for uh, some reason, they will uh, constantly reduce the amount of meat they consume. And is that for, do you, do you believe that that's for price? Because meat is expensive these days. Is it price? Is it a, as you say, is it guilt? Is it trying to save the planet? What would be the driving reason for that? Well, it's, uh, there's a, there are a variety of reasons, but I would say health is number one. Number two is the environment. So uh, the plant-based movement, if, if you will, uh, is making a case uh, for the environment that uh, your carbon footprint is lessened as a result of eating plant-based products. But that, that is being contested by, by, uh, uh, by cattle producers uh, I mean, there's, the debate is so divisive. You're hearing all sorts of stories, and in particular around whether or not the product is healthy for you or is the product 
uh, environmentally friendly as well. And, and those are two uh, points of contention right now between uh, the plant-based movement and, and the traditional sources of proteins, like, and, it, and in particular, the beef industry. Well, let, let's go with the health thing for a second first. Later in the show, here on the show, we're going to be talking about Disney World, different topic entirely, but I don't know if you've ever been down to Disney World. When I was down there a while ago, they have these brontosaurus-sized turkey drumsticks that you can buy in the park that you walk around and people are gnawing on these giant turkey drumsticks. And I bought one because... I, I can actually send you a picture of myself eating one of them. So, okay. All right. And so you have the same experience. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And your experience then was probably mine. When I bought this and I bit into it, my first thought was, this doesn't taste like turkey. This tastes like ham. It tasted exactly like ham. And it made me wonder how much, if we're, if that was the reason I'm mentioning this, it made me wonder how much we're manipulating the flavors within the meat. What are we putting into our foods to make them taste the way we want? Which leads me to this then beyond beef or these other things, because plants don't taste like meat. And it makes me wonder when we're talking about the healthy stuff, how much stuff are we putting in or are they putting into these things to make them taste like what we want them to taste like? But that's why I, earlier I mentioned uh, I mentioned to you uh, how significant their research agenda is for Beyond Meat, for example, to replicate beef, to replicate the taste of chicken, to replicate the taste of, of pork. Uh, you need so much science that the product becomes unnatural. It becomes highly processed, and whether or not it's it's good for you is up for debate. That's why I actually do believe that at some point the plant-based movement will have to figure out a way to actually develop a plant-based taste and not uh, provide a me-too product to the market. Right now, uh, the, the strategy is so much about replacing something instead of complementing something or offering something different. And, and, and because of that strategy, it really is offending a lot of farmers because they're farming, they're providing good product, natural products that a lot of people love uh, and enjoy, especially this time of year with barbecues. And, and that's why there's so much uh, rhetoric, tension between camps right now instead of just focusing on developing something different. Is that where this pushback is now coming from? Because recently, in the last few weeks, we've been hearing some of this pushback. Is it coming from the beef producers or is it coming from dietitians, or, or who is leading the charge to say, wait a second, before you start selling this stuff that you're calling near beef or kind of beef or whatever you want to call it, uh, remember it's not beef. I actually know a lot of beef lovers. Uh, and I'm one of them, actually, but I'm not vocal about it. I just, I, my, my job, I'm a social scientist, and my job is to understand what, what's going on. But I would say that there are a lot of people out there who are annoyed by, by this uh, plant-based narrative uh, a lot. And they, they feel that, my goodness, why should I change my behavior? Why should I change my food choices? Why should I feel guilty eating a hamburger now, uh, given the fact that I've actually eaten the stuff for the longest time. Traditions, uh, when it comes to, when you look at food, you have to appreciate the culture embedded in the food we eat, the traditions as well. And, and right now, it's coming so fast that people feel offended. And of course, the beef uh, industry is, feels threatened by, by what's going on as well. You raise, I mean, it's a great point you raise because it, it seems that food is now one of those dividing things, almost like politics, 
that if you are a vegetarian, you beef people, you meat people are not right. And if you're one of the meat people who likes meat, you look at them almost as a bad person. You're one of those Birkenstock wearing tree hugging left wing loonies. I mean, it's like we're dividing people based on what food we want to eat now. Exactly. And food diversity is not about that. It's not about uh, this or that. It's this and that. And and I think at some point, companies like Beyond Meat and other companies that are coming on board here uh, will need to recognize that uh, we need to respect consumers. If some consumers out there want to become vegans, uh, power to them. It's their choice. We have to respect that. Uh, vegetarianism is the same thing. Flexitarianism, same thing. If you're, if you're, if you want to adopt the keto diet, that's that's up to you. If you if you embrace food diversity, you will see more innovation. But right now, uh, just by providing a meat to product, only leads to uh, more confrontation. So. The success that Beyond Beef has had and, and other ones, is this, do we look at this just as an absolute triumph of marketing at this point, that they've done just such a good job at marketing it that it's taken off? Uh, on the surface, yes. Uh, but as as a food distribution and policy uh, wonk, I would say that uh, the the... Beyond Meat's legacy at this point is about scalability. They've actually proven to the world, including me, that you can actually scale the production of plant-based products up, like significantly. The product is sold in 35,000 outlets, retail outlets. Five years ago, if you would have asked me if that was possible, I would say you're nuts. But they did it. That's incredible. You can't go and sell the Sobeys, Loblaws, and Metro, and Walmart, and Costco a product if you can't deliver, and they did. So well, I would say what they did is a masterclass. And they've it's showing. I mean, their stocks were sixty five bucks in May. They're two hundred and twenty two dollars today. Uh, you know, it's like a eight hundred. And I wouldn't be distracted by the fact that they're still losing money in the second quarter. I would say, and they're actually looking for more cash. They're looking for more cash. It was announced yesterday, just because of scalability. They need more uh, capacity, which is quite typical. They couldn't afford to, say, serve a client like McDonald's right now. They just couldn't. Even even if I don't think it would happen, uh, if McDonald's would come to the door, to Beyond Meat's door, and ask for their product, they couldn't deliver. Just too much requirement. Too much. Way too much. Tim Hortons is a lot already. There are some places, so as I say, Tim Hortons, A&W's, yes, McDonald's, not yet, but there are some places that aren't only not buying into this, but they are now marketing it as we are not doing that. Like they're making it a point of not. Uh, Arby's has said, we're not going to yeah. be doing this. Uh, Chipotle exactly. down in the States, they've said, we are not. So does this now become another dividing line that you say, if you want real meat, here's the restaurant to come to, that we're going to carve out our niche as being the not fake meat kind of place? Well, it's strategic positioning. Uh, you, you have to remember that Chipotle and, and Arby's and and there's been some in, in, smaller independents in, in uh, smaller chains in Canada that have done the same. Uh, this is about catering to their base, uh, and their base is uh, are is very committed to animal proteins, um, like McDonald's. I mean, McDonald's is uh, has seen itself as a, a key ambassador to Canadian beef forever. So for them to actually embrace Beyond Meat it would be a bit of a paradox, or uh, it would create an awkward 
situation between the company and uh, and its customers. Tim Hortons uh, is about inclusiveness. Uh, their forte is coffee, mushrooms, donuts. Uh, they, they're not they're not a burger joint. Uh, they're just offering these products in order for a group of individuals to feel inclusive. All of them, because right now, because this this thing is so polarizing you actually run the chance to actually exclude an entire group just because one of them is a vegan. And Tim Hortons just wants the bit. Tim Hortons wants the business of everyone in that group. Uh, Sylvain, you've probably, I have, I think most people listening probably somewhere along the way have tried and whether we liked it or didn't like it, but we have tried a true veggie burger along the way. Th- those things have been around forever and they don't, generally taste like meat they taste like veggies and and that's fine i mean that's uh that's its own niche of the market but it does seem that that niche of the market has been essentially shut right out of this whole discussion right now if you were someone who's really making a true veggie burger that is supposed to not be meat where do you stand now well most of them are are made at home uh vegans and vegetarians have actually made their stuff uh, their own way at home for forever. Uh, McDonald's actually introduced the veggie burger back in 2003, and I bet you didn't remember. I don't. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was truly disgusting. What's new now? What's new now is that these products are half decent, and and and, and they taste good, and, and so it's attracting a lot of people, and people are curious. That, that's what really has changed over the last few years. Sylvain Charlebois, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking some time this morning. My pleasure. Take care. It is, uh, that is very funny. I, I don't remember ever having one of the McDonald's veggie burgers. I'm sure someone out there has. Send me a note if you ever did. I never did. Radley at 900CHML.com. R-A-D-L-E-Y at 900CHML.com. Uh, if you are a veggie burger eater, and let me just say one thing here. I'm not even sure that burger should be in the veggie in the same sentence, because a burger to me is something specific. A burger is a, when you say it, it has a meaning. It's a meat thing. I don't know why veggie, I don't know if it fits, but anyway, you've tried them before, probably somewhere along the way, someone has fed you something they've called a veggie burger. And some of them are pretty good. Some of them, as Sylvain says from McDonald's, not so great. Some of them, uh, one that I remember trying very specifically, I felt like I was, I don't know what I felt like I was chewing on. It's like you, you're, I didn't have strong enough incisors to bite through it. It was so rubbery and horrible. This thing, to me, the amazing part about this whole debate is, as we talked about just a moment ago, food has now become the latest dividing line between good and evil. If you are a carnivore, if you're someone who eats meat, chicken, beef, whatever, there are people who think you are a horrible person. There are people who look down on you. And if you are a person who's a vegan, there are people who eat meat, who look at you like you are absolutely looney tunes. And it's amazing. I mean, politics, sure, politics is always going to be a divider. But it's amazing to me that food can now be one of those things that we turn our nose up at each other about. But it is. And the fight about this one, man, oh man, now you've got, as I say, you've got companies now taking the position, we're not going to serve that. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know what, what is the element in society? What's the thing that we can now have that we're not going to fight about? 
Because it seems we can fight about everything, even food. Food is the big bringer together of everybody around the table. Now we fight about that too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.